listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Thank you for listening. The Infinite Smile Sangha is made possible by the generosity of friends, members, and people who have been touched by this teaching. Please visit our donations page at infinitesmile.org to help us continue our efforts in spreading the Dharma. A monk asked uh, a master, Yun-men, what's the ultimate teaching? This is one translation. What is the ultimate teaching? And he said, without batting an eyelash, an appropriate response, that the entirety of the teachings of awakening, regardless of tradition, it's about coming at the world in an appropriate way. Of course, this begs the question, okay, well, technically, what is appropriate then? Well, appropriate, an appropriate response would be a response that is totally generous. Totally generous. And we get there when we stop. I know this sounds so bizarre, but when we stop, when, when we stop moving, towards or away from anything, an appropriate response reveals itself. Effortlessly, spontaneously. It's not something we have to work for. We don't have to do anything. Instead, we just allow. We just allow it to happen. We get out of our own way. Our small self gets out of the way of big self-expression. It's like everything gets unclogged, or the uh, curtains are drawn beautifully. So when we are in this uh, space of awareness, when we are really uh, endeavoring to kind of uncover what is blocked, we try to remove the hindrances and so forth, essentially what's... uh, Uh, What we see is that every single thing is an opportunity for awakening. Every single thing. The universe is constantly inviting us to participate. Constantly. There isn't one situation that isn't divine. Not one. Now, they may not be what we like. The situations may not be what egos want. But that doesn't mean that the situations that are presenting themselves aren't red carpets leading us into the house of spirit. So one of the things that we, you know, we kind of talk about kind of stopping movement and so forth. How do we, how do we stop movement? Well, essentially, we can do it physically, and that can be very difficult, but we can do it physically by sitting still. We can also stop mind. And we stop mind by becoming very aware of the space between our thoughts. We start recognizing that a judgment shows up, or a memory shows up, or a plan shows up. And usually, especially at the beginning of a retreat, there's some trepidation that kind of shows up. You know, all this stuff kind of starts happening, and then we immediately say to ourselves, well, I can't do this. This is too difficult. This is, uh, this is tough for me. Um, I'm distracted, or, or whatever. Well, great. That's marvelous. 
If you're aware of the distraction, that which is aware of the distraction is not distracted. Our awareness, in other words, our awareness is once and forever beyond time. Since it can look at time as an object, it is a deeper subject. Since it can look at our mind as an object, it can see what our mind is doing. That divine observer, that witnessing awareness is free from both time and mind. And that can only occur when there's stillness. That can only occur when we stop, when we truly stop. And stopping can happen in two ways. Um, I was talking with my wife about this. Uh, she, she always kind of chides me. Um, we were eating, eating dinner and she said, so what's the, uh, what's the teaching tomorrow? And I said, well, it's truly stopping. And she kind of chortled and she said, you know, you mean like the brick wall kind? Or the self-imposed? And I thought it was so, it was, <laughs> I cracked up and I said, you know what? It's like the universe gives us the brick wall kind. Maybe it's the loss of someone we love. Maybe it's the loss of a relationship. It usually involves loss. That's the brick wall stoppage, you know, when all of a sudden it's like, wham, oh man, what just happened? All right? And then usually, in a matter of instance, it just, just, it just a couple of moments, we start categorizing and compartmentalizing what the brick wall looks like, why it happened, who's to blame, who, you know, all of those things. Instead of just allowing the stoppage to help us see beyond time and mind. Instead of literally enjoying the stoppage, the brick wall experience tends to immediately put us into a situation of reattaching to judgment, blame, attack, defend, that type of stuff. The other option, uh, as my wife was, was mentioning, is the self-imposed kind with a wink and a nod. Self-imposed kind is when we do this consciously, when we, when we, instead of having to hit a brick wall, we can just stop moving. And this purposeful connection with stopping, this true, pure openness to just stopping reveals everything that hitting a wall can reveal, except it's deeper. And it's deeper because there's intention behind it. It's something, it's, it's almost like, the, it's, it's almost like the, uh, I hate to say this because it implies like a huge goal or something, but it's the fruit of a labor. And that labor is really risky for the ego. That labor is to not move. The ego can only exist if there is motion. It can only exist if there is motion. If it is, and I'll give you an example, the two kinds of, uh, of, of motion we were talking about. One is the motion of time. The ego can only exist if there is time, if there is past and present. And it's moving back and forth. And every once in a while it makes a pit stop at judgment. Okay? But that's the only way the ego can remain in charge. The minute we stop and we're neither attached to memories or to plans, 
nor are we living in judgment. We're in a totally different space. There's an intentional willingness. There's an intentional uh, uh, openness to what is. And what comes out of this? The ultimate teaching, an appropriate response. So some of you may recognize this, especially uh, when, when, we, when we truly stop, we start uh, staring down our own attachments. And this can be really, really uncomfortable. It's not always a, a marvelous experience when we start seeing our attachments. I'm attached to comfort. I'm attached to a certain temperature. I'm attached to a certain type of person. I'm attached to a dharma delivered in the following ways. Boom, 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 whatever. We start seeing very clearly what it is that we're clinging to. But the cool thing here is that when we see what we're clinging to, when they are made conscious, Freud always talked about this, believe it or not, when things are made conscious, they no longer hold us. When our attachments are made conscious, they no longer mysteriously confine us. They no longer bind us. So we can test for this, actually, and you can do this uh, as we sit today, as we eat today, as we walk. The test involves uncovering whether your sense experience in any given moment involves anything other than grace and ease. If you are not in a space of grace and ease, there's clinging. If you're in a space of preference, I would prefer this over this. Watch those preferences. They will lead you right into where your attachments lay. Once we uncover what those attachments are, once we begin to demystify them, they no longer bind us. They no longer crush. We, never, we, we no longer feel compressed by their weight. So we're invited here today and every day to study our experience. Study very, very carefully what is it that you are experiencing in this moment, that awareness of what's happening, that sense of being. Sometimes it, it arises as kind of a shimmer. That shimmer actually is open. It's free. It's unbound. Be alert. Be alert, no matter what. Be alert. If you feel tension arising, be alert in that moment. If you feel ecstasy arising, be alert with the ecstasy. Dance with ecstasy and agony with equal attention. Be so alert that even the subtleties of ego, when ego tries to corrupt this entire process, you can be alive to it. And instead of trying to kill ego, what do we do? We give it a kiss on the cheek. And we just say the three words, I see you. We've made ourselves aware of ego 
and more importantly, ego aware of something bigger than itself in this thing that has a name that sits on this cushion or this chair. We watch ego move into its bunker at every turn from this place. Okay, we watch, we see how ego, quite simply, has two moves. Okay, it, it goes into its bunker, and from its bunker, its moves are either attack or fortify and defend. That's it. I guess you could also, you could make the case that it also can, can go into that space of uh, indifference. So those three, those three moves. Attack, defend, and become indifferent. In attack, we see things like aggression. We see finger pointing, blame. I've shared with some of you uh, one of my all-time favorite uh, uh, sayings from, from the uh, uh, Philippines. Whenever you point the finger at somebody, you've got three pointing back at you. It's our responsibility. If somebody wronged you, is it them, or is it your relationship to their perceived action that's the problem that can be fixed? I'll give you a hint. It's the latter. We can't fix them, but we can adjust how we react to them. In defense, Getting defensive, getting defensive, feeling like we're under siege, under attack, become intimate with that feeling of defensiveness. Just like we become intimate with the feeling of, of wanting to attack as a reaction to that you know, counter, what, we're starting to, what we start to recognize is this really <coughs> amazing, amazing dance, which is their unconsciousness is being met by my own. That's the big issue. What happens if you meet someone else's unconsciousness with your consciousness? What happens then? When you meet someone else's unconsciousness, when they are attacking or defending against, against you, and you meet that situation with total consciousness, with total awareness, the light of your awareness that shines into that moment forces them to either meet your consciousness or to go away. Unconsciousness cannot withstand the light of consciousness, just like dark cannot withstand light itself. It's just, it's the way this process works. Similarly, we've talked about defense, we've talked about attack, indifference. Please do not go through this experience of life or go through this experience of this retreat from a place of indifference. Don't, in other words, be numb. Awakening hurts. <laughs> sorry, sorry to burst your bubble. Awakening doesn't mean that all pain miraculously goes away and you can float around off of your cushion. You don't even need a cushion. You just lotus style float around. It, doesn't, it does not mean that you don't feel hurt. As a matter of fact, you will hurt more 
but it matters less. Your relationship to that hurt shifts immeasurably. You become so much more conscious. You become conscious not only of your own hurt, but of others' hurt. Enough hurt to, to destroy an ego, which is exactly why it won't let you play. But if ego has stepped out of the way, what happens? We then can meet all of that hurt and realize that there is no bound to our ability to withstand anything. And while it hurts more, we don't suffer from it. Our relationship to it changes so radically, as a matter of fact, that we are able to still smile in the face of all of it. We're able to still love in the face of all of it. We're still able to respond appropriately in the face of all of it. We come at, from, and through life from a place of love, from a place of openness. Once we've truly stopped, So is attack. Yeah. We might, I think what we might be able to do, in, in my attempts to make it kind of clear, I might have muddled it a little bit. It's basically all defense. Attack. When we attack, it's a defense. You know, when we're indifferent, it's also a defense. So it, it probably would make the teaching, there might be a deeper clarity if I followed your, your line of, of uh, <laughs> yeah, it's all defense. It's all defense. In other words, the, the, to, to really get at the core of our small self, we recognize uh, a mind-affiliated entity that is perpetually under attack. And therefore, its fundamental behavior is, is defense. And it creates these defensive patterns by attacking, by becoming indifferent or numb or by straight up getting, you know, put adding bricks to its wall. Any way you cut it, it's adding bricks to its wall. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, Kim. Um, is the witness um, the same thing for everyone? Is it the thread that is the same for everyone? Is it the oneness? Is it the unity? The witness itself since it has no form, since it is formless, it is only congruent with all of itself. It's, in other words, there's no comparison. Your witness and my witness are not two. They're the same thing. They are exactly the same thing. Okay? And so, but I want to be careful here because your sense of your witness is not my sense of your witness. Okay, so it's not two and not one, as we would say in Zen. Okay, 
In other words, the, wit the witnessing awareness, just awareness itself, there's no way to identify it. So I can say, you know, yes, it's exactly like mine. Yours is like mine. Okay? But it's really, it's at the, it's at the, it's the substrate of all things. So it expresses itself in variation, but it's actually all, it's oneness. Yeah. <laughs> How's that for a very convoluted answer? <laughs> you guys like that one? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. In relationship to that, I had something else to say, but in relationship to that, an analogy in my mind around that is kind of like there's the sun. Mm -hmm. The sun is the, the light, is oneness. And there's kind of like a screen over the sun, and coming through the sun are, are different beams of light. Mm. Each beam of light is our awareness. If you take away the screen, it's all one. That's a really neat way to put it, yeah. I think that, um, yeah, analogies are really fun. Yeah, they're, they're thought exercises. The only thing I, I and I get, I get caught by this too, we can get caught by our analogies. You know what I mean? It's like you have an analogy that, uh, uh, <laughs> the, the deeper you get, the less they apply, you know? Um, I had, I, I got in this, this great, great uh, debate some years back with a, another teacher we're kind of screwing around talking about the shadow uh, that Jung, Jung has talked about and how that you find these incredibly realized masters um, that still do stupid things, you know, really immature things. And, um, and I said, yeah, when, when, you're standing, when you're standing in the light, there will be a shadow. And if you don't address the shadow, there's no way you can stand in the light. And then, of course, the teacher the other teacher, just to you know, kind of snap my neck a little bit, said, "Yeah, but you're still implying a self in that in that space." Oops. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, but I, I love the way you're, you're putting it there. It's the light, light itself, energy itself, um, guides us. But when we become addicted to that energy, or we start becoming addicted to the way we think about something, then we've just diminished the capacity for awakening to burst through us. Yeah. But that's, that's beautifully put, yeah. Don't let the screen fall away. Yeah. Uh, my ego also attacks me. Mm-hmm. If the ego doesn't attack me, will I still get my vacuuming done? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Knowing you, Bobby, yes. <laughs> well, let's, pl let's play with this a little bit. This is really a, a cool point. Um, it, tell me about the, uh, the ego attack. What, is it, what does it sound like? I see. So, uh, w w so tell me about who is it that the ego is attacking? Oops. <laughs> see? 
So in other words, ego is self-mutilating in that moment, isn't it? It's as if it's cutting, yeah. right? Now, because the ego is at home with familiarity, it does not want to get near the unknown. So it'll go towards the known. And our conditioning, it'll go straight towards the conditioning, whatever it is, no matter how you know, ugly, no matter how dysfunctional, no matter how, that's why we'll find ourselves, for instance, in relationships. Uh, any of you who have experienced this, you've been in relationship after relationship after relationship with the same type of person that is wrong for you. But here we go again, you know. And this is because the ego will go into that space because it's already mapped out what love should look like. It should look like this. They tell me it's supposed to look, I, uh, this is what I'm going to do. Similarly, when we are in a space where we start having the, the, you know, the chirping or cawing of ego, kind of, do the vacuuming, do the vacuuming, bad person, bad, you know, something like that, right? <laughs> when we're in that space, essentially, it's ego doing it to itself so it can remain in charge and block the light. Yeah? So, again, the, the technique, if you will, that we use is to, instead of listening to the egoic chirp and then get caught by it, we listen to the egoic chirp and break that cycle by truly listening to it. Not doing anything, listening to it. And then, then we can, from our, you know, our most generous, loving self, say, oh, there you are. Hello, Raven. Nevermore. You know, you, we, we are right in that space, right in that space of meeting the, meeting the delusion. And in the meeting of the delusion, the delusion falls away of its own weight. So the next time you hear that clarion call to vacuum, know that it is, an, it is a direct invitation to awaken. And that goes for everybody in this room. Next time you hear the call to do those dishes or to go for that run or to get you know, whatever it happens to be, that's an opening. It's an invitation. It's an invitation for us to do something by not doing miraculously. We just watch fully. We give our full attention to that moment. Yeah. An applause meter. A distance. Yeah. Very good. Right. I finished. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That doesn't happen. Isn't there just this present moment? And could you talk a little bit more about deeper in the practice? Yeah. There is only this present moment. There is only this present moment. Yet there are things linked to this present moment that we either imbue with weight or energetic valence, so to speak, or not. So in other words, there is this present moment and we either give a lot to what could happen in the future or what has happened in the past. And when we do the thing in the future, when we give, give that could uh, energy, 
what are we doing? We're generating this stuff called stress. Because we are not in the future. We are always perpetually in the now. And so when our mind then starts going towards that movement, that move into the future, which is what the ego, that's what it wants, when it starts doing that, it literally creates a tear between what is and what may or may not be. Right? And so deep, the deeper we go into the practice, the less, that, the less stress there is that's available. Okay? And if we go the other direction towards past, that which has happened <clears throat> in the past, if we, give it <clears throat> if we give it a tremendous amount of energy, what are we doing? We're actually giving, uh, 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 imbuing the stories of everything that has happened to us with so much weight that we are living in the now from a place of pain. So when we start... Uh, when we start occupying, if you will, the present moment so fully that there is no longer anything occupying it, it is just the present moment itself, all thought, all activity begins to be very trivial. Okay? Danger sign. Because when everything starts becoming trivial, you then can go away. And that's not awakening. That's not awakening. That's becoming attached to non-attachment, which is delusion that thinks it's awake. Right? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so from that point, what what's 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 best is all. It's it, that's why I think having the teacher, the teaching, and the group of friends, the sangha, is so important because that more often than not disallows for that, that type of delusion to happen. So what happens is when we, start to be, when we start to live kind of from that present moment and wit the witnessing awareness begins to you know, permeate not only our waking hours but our sleeping and everything else, the, uh, the, the deepening of the practice from that place, uh, I write about it as the ninth sense, which isn't really a sense at all. If we can look at the first... You know, we have sight, smell, sound, taste, touch, and then thought. So thought would be our sixth sense according to the way, the, uh, the way it's talked about in, uh, in the Asian tradition. And then from thought, we can actually observe thought, and that becomes the witness. The witness I've talked about as being the seventh sense. And then the source of the witness is the eighth sense. And that eighth sense, when we start getting down or up into that level of practice, the up and the down don't, they don't even, it's, it's beyond words. But it also has this very deep implication that it is not something out there, it is in here, and it must be consciously brought into the world. There's a compulsion to share it. There's not, there's not just a wish to bliss out and live in that place where we don't care you know we actually care very much but it comes from a different place it, it just, it's not confused with the type of caring that is actually attachment it is caring that comes from a combination of our heart and mind when our body and our mind drop that's about as best as I can do I, I, here's the answer that's what it is
I'll go, we're going to try this, okay? We'll go one, there was a two, two, three, four, and then you had one. So five, so try to remember your, your numbers there if you can, okay? We'll go one, yeah. Yeah, being conscious, that which is conscious of the, of the addiction is free of the addiction. However, living from that place is incredibly difficult without help. That's why we have a teacher. And so a teacher in that type of a situation where, it's, where the, again, we talked about the, you know, the intensity or the inertia behind that particular addiction, instead of just sitting in meditation, it might, the teaching might take the form or the teacher might take the form of a, a relationship with a great uh, you know, specialist in addiction or something like that. And then from there, from there, then doing the work, doing the deep spiritual work can sometimes be, uh, uh, you know, immensely, immensely rewarding. I mean, I've seen that happen quite a bit. Um, but I think there's a, there's a tremendous error for any of us to think that, oh, if you just sit still, everything takes care of itself. No, it, that's actually not true. Uh, sitting still is not going to keep you from you know, spousal abuse, if that's your, if that's your place where, you know, where you normally are. That's deeper. That's why I think combined, combining an Eastern tradition with a Western approach toward a therapeutic approach, that is actually the gift that this version of the teaching really brings into the world. Because what are we doing? We're taking the best that the West has to offer with the best that the East has to offer. And that clash actually is a set of fireworks that all of us really want to, we want to live there. It was number two. Yeah. Um, when we were talking to Iris, and you mentioned that things can start to feel trivial. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you know when that's? How do you know the difference between that, when that's happening and when you are just? <coughs> I guess I'm not really sure what my question is, but something happened this weekend or yesterday. I witnessed someone <coughs> fall and hit their head. Yeah. It's a great question. What's the most generous thing you could have done for your daughter? To just feel it? I don't know. I don't have an answer. I'm asking. What's the most generous thing you can do for your daughter? Because on the one hand, you, you don't want to show her that you're emotionally stuck. You want her to see that you have feelings and that you care and that that's important. At the same time, you don't want to be destroyed by something in front of her, especially when she's at her age, right? So that balance sounds like what you kind of did. But I guess I'm concerned that I stopped myself from feeling something as fully as I could have. It doesn't sound to me, based on the quiver in your voice, that you stopped feeling anything. Right? You stopped the expression. Is, that's different 
than denying the feeling. And there's subtle, there's subtle play in there, and we have to be careful of that because we can become experts at, right, at denying feelings, at becoming indifferent, right? But sometimes moments like that open us in really beautiful ways. And I think the discussion with your daughter afterwards, maybe even today, might be really powerful, you know? But it, like I said, it, it, it doesn't sound to me like it's gone away. It sounds like it was a very important, important offering, important invitation. Yeah, compassion, mm, what a lesson, you know? Not only for us, it, it re-reminds us of, oh my God, could be me. But also, can you believe that, honey? That woman's in pain, or that person's in pain. Yeah, it hurts, doesn't it? Yeah, mom, it does. Then you become the key to her awakening. Who was number three? Yes, sir. Okay, so in meditation, I've heard it in here before, and it, it works for this description. While playing kind of whack-a-mole on the consciousness, you know, the, the ego popping You mean the, the in, thoughts? Yeah, popping in, right. popping in, I see you, I see you, I see you. Yeah. And then trying to get to the watching of the watcher. <coughs> that, that place you just described a minute ago mm -hmm. about that level beyond. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to me about technique, style, some way, remind me. Sure. <coughs> of how to make that shift from just getting caught up into, and the whole thing in meditation becomes about stopping, I see you, I see you, I see you, and I know I've been to the place beyond, I just don't know how to keep getting there. Right, well, stop trying to do that, because what it does is it creates more moles to whack. Okay, number one. Number two, don't whack the moles. They're not to be beaten. They're not to be tagged. They're to be seen. They're actually quite cute. <laughs> the ego is actually quite cute. Okay, and we have this, we've, we've created and imbued the ego with this uh, gremlin-like quality. It has, you know, fangs and a very bad hair and, you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> but the ego wants to the ego is going to try to manage the experience of awakening, right? And the way it does it is by going after all of its thoughts. Well, this will keep it in this situation perpetually unsatisfied forever. So instead of trying to whack, you know, play whack-a-mole, instead what you want to do is watch the impulse to try to tag them. The technique is to see what is and not try to get away from anything. Seeing movement is not movement. Seeing movement comes from stillness. Right? So what I would encourage you to do is watch the ego's impulse to try to whack itself. The mole is the whacker. So if I'm understanding you, the simple act of observation Mm-hmm. We'll shut it down eventually. Yeah, eventually. And it might take some time, okay? 
But all you have to do is remain being curious. Just remain being curious. Don't try to, to bypass curiosity into knowing, because then knowing is just categorization. And categorization is another form, a more subtle form of whack-a-mole, whack-a-thought. Yeah. We had one last, yeah. Give up. Give up. Yeah. Um, the ego is going to try to whack a mole. The ego is going to try to manage this experience the whole way. The ego is going to try to awaken. And the ego is the major impediment to awakening. <laughs> so it's not that we kill ego. If we kill ego, that which is killing ego is just ego. Instead, we observe ego in all of its many different forms and all of its little tricks. And that's its trade. Its trade is to, is to convince. And we just become very, very clear about what it is and what it's doing. Okay? And we will find that ego is a doer. That the minute we start falling into just being, ego has no place to hide. And when ego has no place to hide and it's exposed to the light of our awareness, that light sears it. It burns away the stuff we don't need. And we move in the world differently from that point forward. And we keep nourishing that by continually practicing. I don't know if that's what I said at all, but... but you feel immeasurably more conscious. Consciousness doesn't ebb and flow. Happiness does. Sadness does. Those are states. They're temporary. Consciousness is not a state. Consciousness is what allows for us to recognize the state. It's, a, it's, bef it's prior. Does that kind of make sense? Our awareness is prior to any... It's prior to anything and everything. It's prior to time. It's before the Big Bang. Wow. <laughs> yeah, play with that and then, and then report back. Yeah. <laughs> 